0: You're listening to a talk recorded live at Wildfires 2019. Find out more about Wildfires at wildfiresfestival.com or find us on social media. Thanks, Pete. Thanks, brother. Go ahead and take a seat. Good morning, everyone. Or afternoon, should I say? So much love to all of you, and so much love and respect to your leaders. You have world-class leaders, and uh, on behalf of my church back home, I just want to start off by saying thank you. And fix the mic, but that's a side note. Um, but thank you. You know, in the language of last night, impartation. We on the other side of the world have been the beneficiary of what the Spirit of God has done in you and your stream of the church in the UK and beyond. And we've had Pete Hughes over to visit, and Luke and Anna, Helen Bronth, wherever they are, multiple times, and the Gowtons, and Pete Gregg is on the docket for this fall. And I know there's no ledger in the kingdom of God, but it's a good thing there's not, by the way. Um, But we owe you a great debt, and so we're just so grateful. Um, Psalm 42, if you have a Bible, please turn to Psalm 42. And yeah, as Pete said, I, you know, you never know. I don't wake up in the morning and hear the audible voice of God only on the Sabbath, but not on, you know, most days. But to the best of my ability to discern, I I do carry something on my heart right now for our time together. And it it may sound at first out of left field, but I would just invite you um, to stay with me. I, to the best of my ability to discern, I think there's something here to add to This time and contending for the next great awakening. Psalm 42. Holy Spirit, come, even now as we read. As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, my God. My soul thirsts for God. But why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. My soul is downcast within me. Therefore, I will remember you from the land of the Jordan, the heights of Hermon, from Mount Mizar, deep calls to deep in the roar of your waterfalls. All your waves and breakers have swept over me. By day, the Lord directs his love. At night, his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why must I go about mourning, oppressed by the enemy? My bones suffer mortal agony as my foes taunt me, saying to me all day long, where is your God? Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. You're sitting here in a crowd of, I don't know, 3,000 people, but you feel all alone. All around you are people caught up in the presence of God, singing, and it's beautiful, even shouting, we raise a hallelujah. Maybe to your left, somebody is weeping, or to your right, someone is dancing, and all around you, people are speaking in tongues, and it's beautiful, but not for you. You don't feel God's presence at all, or just a little bit. When you turn your mind to God, it's a blank slate. When you look up to heaven, it's, I don't know, a wall. When you look inside to the soul, there's emptiness. It's like there's nothing there with God, and you think, is this me? Am I, am I in sin? I mean, I, I'm human, I sin. But am I in sin? Is, is God angry at me, or is it God? Is he not actually full of compassion, or is he even real? Is this whole thing a mass delusion and a figment of my imagination? You have no category for an experience of God that feels more like absence than presence. And you're scared to talk about it. You think you're alone. Um, My gut is, by the way, you're not. I have no way of knowing, but my gut is there are, are hundreds, if not at least dozens of you in the room right here, right now. This is a taboo to talk about in church in general and especially in the charismatic stream of the church, which is bizarre. We should be the first people to talk about this experience because we have such a high value for the felt presence of God. For encounter, you would think we would be the first people to line up and explain in detail what it's like when you feel alone in the crowd. Now, of course, there are all sorts of reasons that people don't feel the presence of God in day-to-day life. I would argue the number one reason is just hurry and busyness and distraction. It's not that God is absent. It's that we are absent. We're on our phone or online or late for work or in traffic or in a rush or go, go, go. Dallas Willard once said that hurry is the great enemy of spiritual life in our day. Not progressive theology, not secularism, not politics, not Brexit. Hurry. That's the main threat to your relationship with God. But I'm not here to talk about that. Feel free to order the book on (laughs) Amazon.com. Another reason people don't feel the presence of God is sin in the language of the New Testament. Jesus said, blessed or happy are the pure in heart, for they will see God. This is a little dangerous, but you could reverse engineer that to unhappy are the impure in heart, for they will not see God. Now, Jesus did not say that, just to clarify. But I think that in Jesus' teachings and in the writing of of Scripture, you make the connection. There is a reciprocal relationship between whether we honor or dishonor God with our mind and our body that is the temple of the Holy Spirit and our felt experience of intimacy with God. And this is just common sense in a relationship. I think of my relationship with my wife who's back home. Um, When I sin against her, she is gracious by nature, She has made a covenant with me. She will stay faithful to that covenant. We still live under the same roof, but as we go about our day, there is a relational distance between us. Sin does that. It creates a relational distance between us and God. But I'm not here to talk about that, and I have no desire to write a book on it either. Third is the demonic. There are multiple examples in the Old and New Testaments of demonic powers that create a block between heaven and earth. You feel this over cities at times. I think of the story of Daniel contending with God in prayer for 21 days, and there was literally a prince or a spiritual malevolent power between him and heaven. But I'm not here to talk about that. I'm here to talk about the seasons of life when, again, to the best of your ability to discern... You're not like all over your phone and gone and not present to God. You take time to pray and come to quiet and come to church. You're not in sin. I mean, you sin. We're human, but you're not in sin per se. And as far as you can tell, it's not the demonic. It's something else that you can't put your finger on. You just don't have the same felt sense of the presence of God that you used to. Your experience of God is that of the poet in Psalm 42. As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants. I thirst, I I wag at the tongue, I ache for the water that is you. Now, people misread this psalm, at least in the church tradition that I grew up in. They interpret it to mean, God, I thirst for you, and you are water for my soul. But notice that is close, but not quite the imagery of the poet. The imagery of the poet is of a deer that is out in the desert, that is dying of thirst, and it comes to the river to drink, but it's bone dry. There is no water to be found. In the psalm, thirst is a bad thing, not a good thing. And there are Psalm 42 seasons in our life with God where we call the desert home, where we thirst for God, but when we come to the river to drink, when we come to wildfires, when we come to morning prayer, when we show up at church, when we open our mind to God, it's dry. We feel more of God's absence than his presence. Like the psalmist, we remember seasons in the past. I used to go to the house of God, verse 4, under the protection, with shouts of joy and praise among the festive throng. I remember that time when I was at wildfires, or I was at this, or I was at church, and I remember that sense of the presence of God. But now it's gone. We feel so far away from God. I think of there in verse 6, from the land of the Jordan, from the heights of Hermon, deep calls to deep. That, if you know anything about Israel's geography, that's as far away on the map in Israel as you can get from the temple, the locus point of God's presence. He's saying, I feel as far away as I can get and still qualify as an Israelite from the presence of God in my life. We feel a sadness, quote, my soul is downcast within me. That's the refrain multiple times in the poem. We feel anxious. Why so disturbed, turned up on the inside within me? What is this ache, this angst? And and we feel abandoned by God. Why have you forgotten me, verse nine? And God, the reality is, has us right where he wants us if you are a follower of Jesus, which is almost all of you, the odds are very high that either you have been through a season like this in the past, you are in a season like this in the present, or just here to encourage you from the United States of America, you will have this experience in the future of desert. And this, by the way, is one of many metaphors all through the library of scripture for this kind of experience of God. There's the metaphor of a fog, or a cloud, I think of God in the cloud on the top of Mount Sinai. Moses, we read, went into the thick darkness where God was. There are seasons where God feels more like a cloud than like a light. Pruning, that was the metaphor used by Jesus. Every branch that bears fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. Um, roses grow in your climate as they do in mine. And every whatever time of year it is, every winter, every February, I'm struck by the way they just slash a rose bush down to the, down a few inches off the ground. You think, where was all that color and life and beauty and health and growth? It's just gone. But that's the gardener at work for more color and health and life and beauty. Winter is another metaphor in scripture. Waiting is another metaphor. Hiding, I think of the prophet Isaiah. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the descendants of Jacob. I will put my trust in him. Written at a time of exile where it felt like God was hiding his face from all of the nation as they were gone in a pagan land. All sorts of metaphors for seasons when our experience of God, again, feels more like absence than presence. Now, this phenomenon has come to be called, this is not language from the New Testament, but church history, the dark night of the soul. Now, I hear that, and I think of Christopher Nolan up at Wayne Manor on the top of the hill there, and, you know, I think of Batman or whatever. It sounds so ominous. It's not. That language actually goes back to St. John of the Cross and his spiritual director, St. Teresa, two 16th century Spanish masters of prayer and life with God and the growth of the soul. In fact, many have called St. John's book by that name, The Dark Night of the Soul, the most important book on prayer ever written. Maybe not quite as good as a Pete Gregg book, but close. Which is interesting since it's about the seasons of our prayer life when we don't feel God's presence. Now, there are other names for it. The 14th century anonymous British monk that we still quote to this day called it the cloud of unknowing. Most just call it a desert or a dry time with God but i like this language language of the dark night of the soul now for those of you new to this category what exactly is it well let's start off with what it's not it's not a time of pain and suffering a lot of people use it that way the two may overlap in times of pain and suffering we often wonder god where are you in my life why was she healed and i'm not healed why do i have a chronic illness or whatever it is but Um, and this is especially true by the way if you have a literal illness of your body you're a whole person and often when your mind or your body are not right it it has an effect on your sense of the presence of God but more often than not in times of pain and suffering we feel more of God's presence you hear that refrain all the time I just feel such a deep sense of the peace of God with me she just said that I don't know if I'm healed or not but I'm okay I know God loves me like that's the sense so often we have, a deep sense of peace. Secondly, it's not a time of doubt, though again the two may overlap. I believe that doubt is one of the primary schemes of the enemy against us in the dark night of the soul. It's our lack of a sense of God's presence causes us to doubt whether there is, even is a God in the universe or in our life. But this is not a synonym for a doubt. So what exactly is it then? Well, basically, it is a season in our apprenticeship to Jesus where he intentionally takes away not his presence. He would never do that to us. But the felt sense of his presence in order to do a work of purgation and preparation in us for a greater level of intimacy with him. Gerald May, who's a psychologist and spiritual director, is a bit of an expert in the writings of St. John and St. Teresa, defines it this way. An ongoing spiritual process in which we are liberated from attachments, more on that in a minute, and compulsions and empowered to live and love more freely. Now, it's hard to describe because it's dark, meaning it's it's like trying to describe landscape in the dead of night. It doesn't really make sense normally until you're through it and the sun comes up and you're in the light of day. It's more of a non-experience than an experience, more of an unlearning than a learning. But here's a very simple but key idea I want to pass on to you today. The dark night is God's work in our life. Thomas Kelly, if you're familiar with his writings, once had a direct tea come to him and say, "Listen, something's not right. I, I, I think I'm more mature than ever with Jesus, but when I pray, I no longer feel God's presence like I, I used to." And he said, "What's wrong with me?" And Thomas Kelly said to him, "God is wrong with you. God is wrong with you." In my own dark night. Um, I made an appointment with a Jesuit priest and spiritual director in town. And the Jesuits just have hundreds of years of expertise in, in the life of prayer. In many ways that Protestants have made the Bible the center of devotional life, or Charismatics have made singing the center of devotional life. Many There's a stream in the Catholic tradition that has made prayer the central devotional life. So they, they just have a rich grasp of the inner dynamics of life of God. So I go to this Jesuit priest, and I sit down, and I I say, I think this may, I'm not sure, be a dark night of the soul, and and he says, yes, it is, and then I say, okay, I hate it. This is the most difficult season I've ever been in in my life with God, and I just want it over, and I want it over this afternoon, hopefully right now as you pray for me, and then I said to him, how do I do this well? This is like my personality, like... To a fault, right? How do I? It's a, everything is a task to do. How do I do this well? I don't want to prolong this. I don't want this to stretch on a moment longer than it has to. And he, in his calm, older Jesuit way, said, "John Mark, the Dark Night isn't something you do. It's something God does to you. It's the work of God in your life. Here's just three or four things that I think God is doing in you and me." and perhaps in the church at large, more on that in a minute, if we are willing to cooperate with him in the dark night. First, God is moving us beyond the pleasure principle to love. In St. John's paradigm, and this stuff's a bit hard to read, but man, it's worth your time if you're ever in this season. When he would say that when we first come to Jesus, you're brand new to Jesus, That's actually when most people feel the most kind of emotional high from Jesus, what he calls beginners, not the mature. And in his logic, the reason is the first thing that Jesus has to do with us when we come to him is wean us off of our love for the world. So to do that in his mercy, he lets us feel this emotional high from him so that we fall out of love with the world or sin or whatever you want to call it and in love with him, which is beautiful. But that's the starting point. It's not even the middle, much less the end. As with all romantic relationships, the problem is not the honeymoon. That's a wonderful season. The problem is when we love the honeymoon more than the bride or the groom. We love the feeling, the emotional high, more than the soul. And deep down, we all know that that kind of romantic love is narcissistic at the core. Whether it's for God or a boyfriend or a girlfriend or a newlywed, we don't actually love them yet as they are. That's still to come. We love the feeling that we get from them, or at least a little bit of a mix of both we're still run off of what psychologists call the pleasure principle, meaning we do what we do, we think what we think, we say what we say, we live how we live because of how it makes us feel. It makes us feel good. And often when we begin to follow Jesus, that's it. We, we follow Jesus because he makes us feel good. Now, again, this is not bad at first. But at some point, we have to mature beyond this. So God graciously, in John's paradigm... What he graciously does is take away that emotional high and invite us to walk by faith, not by feeling. To follow Jesus, to live, to serve, to minister, not out of the pleasure principle, this makes me feel good, but out of love. Another thing that God is up to in the dark night is exposing our sin and elevating our holiness. It is over my pay grade to explain how this works at a psychological or even a spiritual level, but something about the dark night, and those of you in it, you know, when you're in it, I find that I am more aware of my sin than ever before, more aware of not just my behavior but the motivation behind my behavior how narcissistic it is more aware than ever before by this time you're normally a little ways into your journey with Jesus and you have come to experience his love and and you become more and more aware of all the ways that you do not mirror and mimic that love to others the way that you have been loved by God Aware of all the ways that, as Paul once said, we fall short of the glory of God. Something about the dark night, it's like a mental picture of our life with no filter. It's, I think, of the desert imagery. It's like you're out in the desert in the brutal sun, to switch the metaphor, and just you're exposed, you're laid bare, there's nowhere to hide. You are who you are before God, And, and, and what if that's not the unkindness of God, but the kindness what if God is graciously in love, exposing our sins so that we can see our emptiness apart from him, so we can see that our formulas for spiritual formation break down, that we're not in charge, that Jesus is not a self-improvement project, that we need the cross? And there is an invitation in the dark night to a greater holiness, those of you in it, this is the invitation of Jesus. It's a test of sorts. None of us like that idea, but it's all over the writings of the Bible. It's a test of sorts for you as much as for God. Will we go back to the world, back to sin, back to the pleasure principle in an attempt to feel good? Many people do at this point. Many people get off the journey with Jesus when they hit the dark night. Or Will we press in, stay faithful, and actually consecrate, raise our level of devotion to God in mind and body and holiness? Will we press into that ache for God at a deep level? Third, God is setting us free from our attachments and our anxieties. So uh, Gerald May, who has a beautiful kind of book called The Dark Night of the Soul, ironically, on St. John's book. It's a bit confusing. You don't need to remember that. There's no test. But his summary of St. John and Teresa's summary of the spiritual journey is in one sentence, the spiritual journey, our life with Jesus, is a journey from slavery to attachment to freedom to love. Slavery to attachment to freedom to love. By attachments, he means the things that we think we need to live a happy life. What Thomas Kelly called our emotional programs for happiness, what our Calvinist friends call the idols of the heart. As long as we are in slavery to our attachments, meaning we think that we need someone or something or this idealized vision of life in order to live happy, we're actually not free to love not only our life, but the people in our life. Um, To make this very simple, it's a bit of a tender analogy, but my wife has a chronic illness, something that we wrestle with and pray through. As long as I am in slavery to my attachment, to the ego ideal, this idolized vision of my mind of what my marriage should be, what my wife should be, what my autobiography should be, as long as I need her and it and us to fit this image in my mind's eye, then I'll be happy. As long as I am in slavery to that, not only am I not free to enjoy the wife and marriage and life that I have, I'm actually not free to love her as she is. I will wound her, I will manipulate her, I will, I will use sarcasm to get what I want in a vain attempt to manipulate the people and the circumstances of my life to live happy rather than release the illusion of control to God. You could apply that rubric to pretty much any area of your life where you care about anything. What God is doing, and again, over my pay grade to explain this phenomenon But something about the dark night, God is setting you free from those attachments. You just come to this place where you can't grasp anymore. You can't wrestle anymore. You can't cajole or manipulate. You just, you realize, I have no power. I'm out of control of my relationship with God. There's no formula. There's no three-step thing. And you just fall on the mercy of God. And it does something to you at a heart level. It does a work of freedom in you. Freedom from attachment and even from anxiety. Jesus' longest teaching in the Sermon on the Mount was on anxiety. And it's interesting how he connects the dots between what we worship and what we worry, right? There's a break in the English language in the translation, which is unfortunate. But Jesus says in one line, you cannot worship God and money and in the next line therefore I tell you do not worry about your life. Jesus connects the dots between our, what we worship or our attachments or the things we think we need to live happy and our anxiety what we worry about. Find any anxiety in your life trace it down to the root harsh issue and you will find an idol of the heart, an emotional program for happiness, an attachment something that does not go by the name of Jesus that you think you need to live free and happy and whole. And so as we get free of our attachments, we get free of our anxiety. You notice people come out of the dark night with a profound sense of calm. Just pay attention to older, wiser followers of Jesus, pretty much all of whom, not all, but pretty much all of whom have been through a season or multiple seasons like this. And they walk into the room. They are the epitome of what Friedman called a non-anxious presence. You just feel your heart rate slow as you come around them. Pastor Enoch last night, my favorite thing about that man, there was no hype, calm. No, he wasn't out like, not the cool Pentecost, like he wasn't that. There was no just calm, present. You see that common denominator in pretty much every amazing oldie follower of Jesus except Ellie Mumford, and she is just an exception to every (laughs) rule. But even in her, full of energy and life and joy, you're around her, there's no anxiety. She's free to just be who God made her, to be free of all the stereotypes and pressure. That's what God, one of the things that God does in us as we go through this season. And finally, what God is doing, and I think this is really the most important, is deepening our intimacy. Now, it doesn't feel that way, we feel farther from God, not closer. But the contemplative tradition would offer a different perspective. It would say that early on in our journey with Jesus, and this, this is a bit tricky to get your head around, so just do your best to think, this, think about this. They would say that early on in our experience with Jesus, it's based on thoughts and feelings, or the human senses, Meaning we have our relationship with God is basically thoughts that we have about God, ideas in our mind about who God is, who God isn't, ideology even about God, about the kingdom of God, about church, about all of that. And we have feelings that we get from God. So when we practice the spiritual disciplines, whether it's worship by singing all together or silence and solitude early in the morning or the many spiritual disciplines in between, as we practice the spiritual disciplines, our relationship with God is made up of thoughts and feelings. Now, it's not a bad thing at all. It's beautiful. But the mystics would say that God is not a thought or a feeling. God is a person, and God is spirit, and the deepest level of intimacy is not more thoughts and more feelings, as most of us assume. The deepest level of intimacy is what they would call spirit to spirit or will to will. St. John's line was, to, quote, gaze in loving attentiveness on God. All analogies break down, but think of the life journey of a couple in love, right? when I think of my wife and I. When we were first dating... It was, it was literally teenage romance. She was 17, I was 19. When we were first, we could talk for, not for hours, for days until we just ran out of time and had to be at work the next morning. And every time I was in her presence, and even when I wasn't in her presence, I was just full of an emotional high. And, and it was beautiful. And the honeymoon season was beautiful. And I look back with so much nostalgia and affection and gratitude. But now... 18 years into marriage in just a few weeks. Uh, it's very different. Um, we talk a lot. We have a great friendship. But honestly, we kind of run out of things to say once in a while. And then we just make a grocery list. <laughs> Sorry if that's not romantic for you 20-somethings. But it is life. Um, somebody has to do the grocery shopping. And in our family, we split it. All right? Um, and and I still have feelings for her and around her. but But actually... Our level of intimacy now is deeper than ever before. She's the only person on earth where I feel most vulnerable, most exposed, and most safe. Where the worst of me is laid bare and I'm still loved. And often our love and affection for each other is about just the ordinary life together. We still love to talk, we still love to feel, we still love a romantic getaway. But that's not most of our life. Most of our life is a deeper level of intimacy. All analogies break down, but in the same way, though it doesn't feel like it, in this season God is deepening your intimacy with him. And it is a season. I don't mean to say that God's absence will last forever. I don't believe that's God's will for us. I don't believe the Mother Teresa experience is normative. I think there are other readings of what was going on there. I think that in the dark night, God is purging us and preparing us for what John and Teresa and all of the ancients called transforming union, the highest level of our spiritual formation, where we are most whole and healthy and set free from our attachments, our anxiety, our sin, and set free to live in God's presence and his love and to love the world as we move through it. But to get us there... It is not a quick jaunt, but a lifelong journey. Now, I don't know how many of you are at this place with God. I literally have no clue if I'm talking to three people or not right now. Um, A spiritual director that I really respect who spent years on staff at a church said in her estimation at any given moment in any given church, 20% of the congregation is in a dark night. I have no data on that. I have no clue, and I have no way to read it because most of us feel like we can't talk about it. Most of us feel like we have to hide. Most of us feel like we have, even if we're in a healthy, loving church, we just still have no category. I'm just here to tell you, you don't. And if I'm wrong, worst case scenario, they don't invite me back, and I celebrate Fourth of July with just a few less fireworks this year. No, but I am honestly here to tell you, I'm in a dark night. I hesitate to say this, but I've I've been there for Two years, five months, and three weeks, but who's counting? And it was a bizarre experience. I remember it's crystal clear in my mind. It was a January winter's day, and I felt like I was at the apex of my life with Jesus at that point felt more hunger and thirst for God than I ever have. I felt a call from God to teach on spiritual formation in our church and inject the ideas of life with Jesus into the church around the West. And I was more devoted to prayer than I've ever been. I just had made a new plan. My number one New Year's resolution for that year was to get up an hour earlier and devote my year to prayer. And within days of that resolution, in a moment, there's a story behind it, but in a moment, I felt the sense of God's presence depart. Not the presence of God. I see the last few years have been some of the most fruitful years of my life. As I look with my eyes and I see God at work, but I I don't sense it in me at all. And honestly, I would love to say it's been easy. It's been really hard. But you know what, I'm here to tell you that I love Jesus more than I ever have right now. I desire him, something about absence makes the heart grow fonder, right, cliche. I ache for God with a deeper sense than I ever have. I ache to be a holy man, to be free, to be full of love, and I feel more free than I ever have from my attachments, I feel more content, I feel more at peace, anxiety has been a lifelong struggle for me, I feel less, I feel more calm than I ever have in my entire life and I just trust that this is God, that I'm on a journey. I have no idea if it will end in five minutes or five years, I have no way, it's not up to me. But I have, I trust that I am en route to transforming union, that Jesus has life for me down the road and even here. So whether it's 2% of you or 20% of you, I, I honestly have no clue. But I just want to speak to you for just a few minutes before we apply this to wildfires. And I have no idea, by the way, what the time limit is. And it's just better to ask for forgiveness than permission. So I did not ask. I have no idea what the program is or what my time is. And I have no clue. So here we go. Um, Just a few things. This is really fast. For those of you in this season, just a few things that I have come to pick up along the way. One, don't try harder. I'm all for the spiritual disciplines. But the solution is not to over-medicate with more spiritual disciplines. Because the problem is not the source of your dark night. It's actually a problem. Is not your laziness or lack of initiative. It is God and his love for you. Secondly, rest. You don't fight your way through a dark night. You rest your way through. You just abide in faith. I mean, there's a time to wrestle with God for sure, but it's a general rule. It's an invitation to rest and release your life into the love of God. In fact, this season can be like an emotional, even a spiritual Sabbath for you. Keep doing the spiritual disciplines, but don't overdo them. And focus on practices like rest and Sabbath and stillness and even sleep as an act of trust in God. Third, wait patiently. It is a season, it will not last forever. It feels like it will because there's no end date on the calendar. You know what I mean? Whenever there's no, like, you have no way to measure time, so it just makes it feel way longer. But it will end, and not before it should. St. John's hypothesis, by the way, was if you ask for it to end, if you ask for God to take you out, God might just answer your prayer, but then you will go backward on the spiritual journey and get stuck, not forward. My prayer changed a while into it from God, take me out of this to God, take me through. God, give me faith and fidelity to journey through. For trust in Jesus, not in your ideas about Jesus or your feelings about Jesus, Both of which matter, but neither of which are Jesus himself. And often in the dark night, our ideas are stripped down. All the things are certainty, which is not as helpful as you would think. And I'm all for orthodoxy and doctrine and the New Testament. That's my thing. It's my gig. But at the end of the day, there is a mystery to God that we come free to in the dark night. What that English mystic once called the cloud of unknowing as we move closer and closer to God five slow down and enjoy the simple pleasures think of a desert this is clearly not a desert land and where i'm from it's not either um but if you've ever been to a desert resort or on a hike in the desert it's actually very beautiful but the desert in an acquired taste very few people prefer the desert as their ecology of choice like i just really want to retire in the sahara you know what i mean but actually a lot of people come to love it over time because what you have to do in the desert is slow down and pay attention to the small beauty all around you, a succulent down at your feet, the variation and shade of rock, the sunset, the sunrise, the endless horizon. This can actually be a beautiful time in your life. Six, resist doubt. Right after Jesus was baptized in the Jordan River, talk about an emotional high, God spoke over him. This is my son. Then he goes into the desert. And who who led him to the desert? Those of you that have read Luke. The Spirit led him into the desert where he was tempted by the devil, and what was the temptation? Quote, if you are the son of God. It was the seed of doubt in Jesus' mind. This is the fundamental lie of the enemy from the Garden of Eden to Jesus in the wilderness to you and me here today to question the word of God, to implant doubt in your mind about what God has said to be true. Jesus was wise to live in the desert by what God said in the river, and you and I would be wise as well to live in the desert by what God has said to us in the river, said to us in the past. If that's a journal entry, if that's a prophetic word, if that's a sense, if that's a declaration of your life, you live on that until God's work in you is through. The enemy will work hard to isolate you. Don't let him. Stay with when you don't have faith, stay with people who do. Stay in the community of faith. Let their faith carry you, even today as we pray in a moment. And finally, release the illusion of control. It is an illusion and it's not a healthy one. Release your relationship with God to God. This is on him, it's not on you. You don't have to carry it, you just have to stay faithful to him. You're not in charge of your spiritual formation. He is the shepherd, you're the, yeah, you know all about sheep, you're British, right? It's not a flattering image, but it is a freeing one. Let God do his work. This can be a season of unhurried rest and love and peace and joy. You know, when St. John called it the dark night, he did not mean dark as in oppressive or melancholic or bad. In fact, it's not. Some argue it's a bad English translation. In in Spanish, it's the um, noche obscura. Obscura is the word he used that we translate dark. It's where we actually get the English word obscure. By dark, he meant we don't see what God is doing in our life until after. He did not mean dark as in evil or depressing. He meant we we just, God is hiding from us the grace of his work in our life. We don't see it. We don't feel it. We don't sense it. It doesn't make sense. We feel confused. But actually, he would argue that if we put our trust in God, not in our feelings, that this can actually be a beautiful season of rest, peace, gratitude, joy, as we let God do a deep work in us. This was... John's advice on how to navigate the dark night, quote, allow the soul to remain in peace and quietness. Although it may seem clear to them, those of you in the dark night, that they are doing nothing and are wasting their time, the truth is they will be doing quite sufficient if all they do is have patience and persevere in prayer. Without making any effort contenting themselves with merely, I love this, a peaceful and loving attentiveness toward God and in being without anxiety. The scripture keeps coming to mind in the last 24 hours, James 1, consider it pure, what? Joy. My brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, and this is a trial of sorts, because you know, here it is, that the testing of your faith, that's what you're in right now, produces what? Perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. That's the word for many of you in this room. Let God finish his work in you. Let God, let, let God do what God does. Just say yes and open up to him in it. Now to end, and I'm just about done. Um, what does, if this still sounds wildly out of left field, what does the dark night have to do with contending for the next great awakening in Britain and around the world? How is any of this on message? Well, here, here's my gut. What if we were to apply the paradigm of the dark night of the soul, not just to individuals, to your life or mine, but to the church? What if the church in England, the church around the West, is in a kind of dark night, where the former sense of God's presence, the charismatic renewal of the 80s, the 90s, the sense of, I remember what it was like, the Christendom, people all around us at the temple in Jerusalem, so to speak, but now, that sense is gone. Now all sorts of people, millennials just abandoning the church right and left. But w- what if this is actually, sure there's secularism, sure there's demonic, sure all sorts of this is not God. But what if there's a stream inside a, the complex whole of the human story in the West and in England? What a part of this is that this is from God and this is a time of purgation as the ancients would call it. And of preparation for the next move of God, for transforming union in Britain and beyond? What if God is moving the church beyond the pressure pleasure principle and into love? What if he is exposing our sin and elevating our holiness with a call to repentance and a greater consecration and devotion to God? What if he's setting us free from our attachments and the way we've done church and consumer cultural Christianity and the things we think we need to live a happy life and what if he is actually deepening our intimacy with him and what if the dark night is a sign of maturity that you're ready church in England you've had decades of the honeymoon you're ready for the next step of maturity what if this is God's faith in you I think of that line in the count of Monte Cristo where he's in prison and his whole life is a mess and he says, I don't believe in God anymore. And the old priest says, yes, but God believes in you. What if God believes in you, Church in England? What if God believes in you, wildfires? And what if the dark night is the last precursor to the dawn of a new day? That would be worth contending for in prayer here and beyond. To close, let's end with that legendary Englishman, C.S. Lewis, which we Americans fawn over. In the screw tape letters, if I'm assuming you've read it, just I don't know why, just because you're British, I don't know. Um, His work of satire, if you know anything about it, he has the senior demon screw tape right to the apprentice demon. So everything is 180. So the enemy in this quote is Jesus. Read this. Sooner or later, he, God, withdraws. If not in fact, I mean, not the actual presence, at least from their conscious experience, all those supports and incentives. He leaves the creature, you and me, to stand up on its own two legs to carry out from the will alone duties which have lost all relish. It is during such trough periods, much more than during the peak periods, that it, you, me, is growing into the sort of creature he wants it to be. The prayers offered in the state of dryness are those which please him best. We, the demons, cannot tempt to virtue as we do to vice. He wants them to learn to walk and must therefore take away his hand. And if only the will to walk is really there, he is pleased even with their stumbles, Do not be deceived, Wormwood. Our cause is never more in danger than when a human, no longer desiring but still intending to do our enemy's will, looks round upon a universe from which every trace of him seems to have vanished and asks why he has been forsaken and still obeys. Let's stand together and pray.